0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: So, Susan, apparently um, Ben follows the Mike Pence rule mm-hmm. of he won't be in a room alone with a woman without his wife.
2: Right. That's why we are Wittis-less. Yes, because Tammy is out of wit-less. town,
1: and so Ben... Refused to be. Well, anywhere.
2: he, you know, he has the, he takes an extreme position where he can't yes. be in the room with men or women. He just, if his wife's yeah. not there, He's he not can't there. be in the room. You which, you know, it. Mike Pence is right. Better safe than sorry. It better really is a sorry. better
1: safe than sorry situation. I think it's probably kept Mike Pence out of a lot of predicaments. And it's probably a good rule for him to follow now, especially. I, however, do not follow this room, which is why I'm happy to be in a room full of ladies.
2: Just ladies this week.
1: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the on-the-edge-of-our-seats edition. I'm Shane Harris, lady friend reporter. I'm in a room full of some of my favorite women journalists, your, your thinkers, gal pals, essayists, my gal pals. This is like if I had a party, like a gal pal party at the house, and we recorded a podcast.
2: We um, should do that. We should
1: totally do that. We have liquor here if anybody wants it, just so we're clear.
2: And you might need it.
1: <laughs> but I'm here with my good friend, Susan Hennessy, as always, and Quinta Jurassic of Lawfare. Welcome back, Quinta. Hello, hello. And Nancy Youssef, my buddy. Hi, darling. From Daily. how far back do we go? We go back so Three, far. Three,
3: four, 50 years. 50 years like
1: back when we were young vampires. That's right. That's right. Nancy Youssef of the Wall Street Journal, formerly of the Daily Beast, where I know you from. Definitely. And you were, we were talking about this on the way in, you were one of the first like uh guests of the podcast when we first started
3: yeah i and did not know that such a wonderfully long way. Yeah. it's been great
1: ben was there for that but this is before he adopted the pence role so it was okay for him right to right alone or with or,
2: him. or if tammy was there <clears> then that's
1: no it. she wasn't there oh you yeah, Tammy. yeah yeah it was see. just the I three see. of us it right, was yeah. very pre-pence um maybe we'll be living in a pence world very soon. Who knows? A lot of things can happen. (laughs) We're recording Mm. this podcast. We're just going to go ahead and say at 2.15 p.m. on Wednesday, April 11th. Um, So just in case the world has shifted anytime uh, after this podcast comes out, know that we're giving you our best read. On history as it's happening on the podcast this week, federal authorities launch raids on the home uh, and office of President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testifies before Congress, and the U.S. prepares for possible military action against Syria. So let's start with the, uh, I guess, the, the, the main news of the week that has everyone uh, kind of on the edge of our seats because we're wondering what the president's reaction might be to this. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but the Southern District of New York uh, uh, agents there and acting under uh, a warrant from the Southern District uh, launched raids on Michael Cohen's office, his personal residence, and a hotel where he was staying with his family while his home was under renovation. Uh, and as we understand it, they were looking for records about payments that Michael Cohen made to two women who have said that they had uh, affairs with the president. And the information appears to also touch on Attorney-client information, so communications that Cohen may have had with President Trump, possibly before he was elected. Um, Susan, so this is a huge political deal, and we're going to talk about that too. But let's just start quickly with the 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 legal significance of this, and kind of put this in context, uh, both in terms of what it what it means that a search warrant was executed. On the office and residence of an attorney, much less the attorney of the President of the United States, and where this fits into our evolving understanding of the Russia probe.
2: So I think there's a few things, and I'll start by sort of commending a piece that Ben wrote that sort of lays out some of the implications for this earlier this week. Um, so he's here with us in spirit and blog post, if not in uh, in physical form. Um, but look, this is this is significant one because Michael Cohen is incredibly close to the president. Um, it's also significant because Michael Cohen is a lawyer, and and because this is the search was for uh, related to sort of client services information, and so we can read a number of things into uh, into. The execution of that warrant and the fact that it was signed off on—it um, it tells us that there's something really significant. So first and foremost, you know, for a search warrant to be executed, there it has to have a probable cause standard. Um, but this is one thing that, that Ben flagged. Um, we can be sure it's all is a hell of a lot more than that, right? This is so this is not like politically issue. sensitive right. that, like, even if you said, "Well, probable cause isn't that isn't that strong of a standard," like, we can be absolutely certain that this is a rock solid warrant application. No one would go out, out on a Limit. Um, so, just sort of as a political matter of sort of prudential judgment, it says a lot that they're getting this close to the president. It says and a kind lot of about- suggests
1: that they already have a lot of evidence already before they went. And raided his house and his office.
2: Right. It's it's also it's really bad news for Michael Cohen. It's also really bad news for President Trump. I mean, like, we are getting into kind of the inner circle stuff. Um, the other thing that's significant isn't just sort of Michael Cohen's personal closeness with the president, which raises the political optics, it's the fact that he is a lawyer. Um so there's something that the Trump is sort of like attorney client privilege is dead, um, you know, and is really focused on on uh, uh the inviolability of that uh of that particular relationship. Um it is significant because the, the Justice Department has particular rules and protections governing uh, searches that are executed against lawyers because there is attorney-client privilege. Because you want to be really, really careful, really sensitive about recognizing this privilege, so it's like the, it's best understood as sort of a uh, uh, an extension of a Fifth Amendment privilege, right? So if you have the right not to incriminate yourself, um, and you need to have the right to have sort of clear and candid communications with your lawyer, then your lawyer also has to, you know, uh, have that protection. Um, <clears throat> So it's, it's incredibly – we can read a lot into it. We know that certain procedures had to have been signed off for this search warrant to have been executed. Um, so I think all in all, it's sort of it's, – it's bad news for the president. It's mm-hmm. sort of – it's highly consequential. Now, I think there is still an open question about what exactly it means for the Russia investigation and how closely tied it is. So um, <clears throat> there's been sort of reporting that Cohen is being investigated for – bank fraud and because the warrant also included documents related to these stormy Daniels payments also Cohen gave and an a yeah. mm-hmm. right um, and Cohen gave an interview I think to CNN where he referenced the stormy Daniels payment so that could have like there's lots of uh, hints that that's what this is uh, the, what this is related to um, <clears throat> so there are people are using the term referral this was a referral from Robert Mueller's team um, there are two like explanations for what that referral might mean one is that in the the course of investigating, Mueller has come across a different crime, right? A crime that he thinks is sort of outside his purview. Um, and this happens in the Justice Department all the time, right? If you're investigating for, you know, drug crimes and you come across evidence of, you know, bank fraud or, or child exploitation or something else, you, you make the referral to the appropriate part and then they do an investigation of that crime. Um, so there's there's one form of referral that you know Mueller has gotten to something, he's seen something that Michael Michael Cohen might have done, and so he's referred the case over in now the Southern District of New York, which executed the search warrant, specifically their public corruption office. Um, and so he's handed a chunk of the investigation over. The other explanation, and this is one that um, former SDNY uh, uh United States Attorney uh, Preet Bharara uh, has sort of flagged, and that's that... Um uh, the SDNY is essentially functioning as a taint team here. Mm. Um, and so the way that this works is because attorney-client privilege is uh, is such an important thing, um, What you might one way you might sort of get around the thorniest issues is that you would have the, the search executed by one group of people. They would review all the materials that they're bringing in for privilege, right? So they're looking at, all right, here's clearly privileged materials, here's non-privileged materials, here's what we think we can see. Then what they're going to do is they're going to take the materials that uh, that, uh, are determined to be not privileged, either because they fall within the crime fraud exception or or some other reason, they're going to hand only those files over to a different team, right? In this case, Mueller's team, so that that team can move forward with a prosecution. And there's no question about whether or not, well, you saw privileged material and now you're using it, right? They aren't going to have to sort of make that showing in standard. We haven't sort of seen enough uh, uh, to make that assessment yet. So sort of two, uh, two possible questions hanging out. Out there then there's sort of the the big giant elephant in the room and that's that trump clearly had a very very strong reaction mm-hmm. to this um this is really getting into the inner circle and so what does it mean for the future of the Mueller investigation for justice department officials um right sort of that's the like dot 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 what happens next
1: right so quinta let me just kind of kick that over to you so <clears throat> there's obviously when as susan laid out there's these kinds of, um, there's there's some questions over exactly the particulars of what the warrant was and who was executing it, but clearly pretty significant legal action, not great for Cohen. President Trump wasted no time in responding to this, uh, as we've discussed. So let's talk about then now the political moment in which we find ourselves, where I think we are all sort of kind of waiting on pins and needles for what the president is going to do. I mean, he has not overtly said that he plans to fire Rod Rosenstein uh, or to move on Bob Mueller, although he has talked about just in the past day or so, I think, uh, in comments about how people have said he could do it. Uh, The White House has said he believes he has the authority to do it. So it seems like now we find ourselves kind of, you know, I feel anyway, maybe you tell me if I'm wrong, like we're sort of getting close to the precipice here uh, that I think is the moment that we've all envisioned that, The president could take some kind of action to try and stymie the investigation. And do you think we're there? Do you think that Michael Cohen being raided is a significant enough trigger to compel the president to do it?
0: Yeah, I would say, um, so Jack Goldsmith had a a really good piece in Lawfare this morning, basically talking about the sort of cycles of response to Trump. Um, And Jack's understanding is basically that it goes like this, you know, that Trump, Trump gets bent out of sorts about something and says he's going to fire Mueller, or he's going to fire Sessions, or he's going to fire Rosenstein. Um, people panic. Then the Republicans kind of say, it would be a very bad idea if you did that. And Trump kind of backs off. And then the whole thing begins again. Um, my view of it is that there's there's kind of another step before that, which is that there there's this lull where Republicans say, af- after Trump calms down, they say, well... We don't need to do anything because he's not going to fire Mueller because he didn't fire Mueller last time that, you know, there, there's been this legislation um, to protect the special counsel that we can actually discuss. The, the merits are a, a much more complicated question, but the, the, the idea, I think, is to serve as kind of a brushback pitch to the president. And every time we enter the lull period, Republicans just say, you know well, he didn't fire Mueller. You know, he's not going to fire Mueller. I don't see why he have to do anything. And then Trump gets, you know. <laughs> it's all good. Trump, Trump feels bolder. Yep. He gets bent out of sorts about something. He gets angry and the whole thing begins again. And what worries me is that it just seems like we're sort of dancing back and forth, you know, one step forward, one step back. As you say, on, like on the edge of the cliff, like there is yeah. not a lot of <laughs> slack here. Um, and my concern is that over time first off that we don't know how much of a rational actor Trump really is that he could get mad enough to not heed the those brushback pitches because they haven't really been substantial it's mostly been sort of signaling rather right. than Right, I think anything. he's kind of
1: gauging that the Republicans Ex- will support him.
0: Exactly, and now, yeah. and the problem is that if he looks at it and says, you know, I've we've gone through this like 20 times, they've never done anything other than say, well, Mr. President, I think that would be a very bad idea. You know, to hell with it, I'm just gonna go do it. Right. And so because he seems so angry in response to the cohen news both on twitter and in the reporting that's been done and because this is the umpteenth round of this cycle that does make me worried that we're headed towards something very bad
1: and i think too that like you know, when, that he sees in his mind a difference between firing rosenstein and firing Mueller, and that he thinks that firing rosenstein is somehow not as severe as firing Mueller. putting aside how you would actually go about quote-unquote firing Mueller, but um Nancy, let me ask you because you spend a lot of your time too. I mean, you're you are covering him primarily in his role as commander in chief, but this really gets at these questions of temperament and judgment and you know, how he responds to facts on the ground and changing situations, which, of course, any commander-in-chief does. But I maybe mean, talk a little about that and then your kind of reaction of where we are right now, too.
3: Well, it's funny. As um, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about Jeff Sessions because there was a time when Jeff Sessions bore the brunt of the blame for this investigation, and now it seems to have shifted to Rod Rosenstein. Right, it he's the like new whipping the, boy. He, yeah. Well, right. I mean, it's there's a reticence to sort of for some, obviously, because Mueller's doing the investigation. So it's interesting how these... Um, Reactions sort of play out. I think, um, I think for a military, you know, the biggest challenge is military depends on structure above all else, Mm -hmm. structure and how orders are given, structures in terms of how things are run, and I think the way it sort of bleeds into the military is the the loss of expectation of a of a clear command from the commander in chief, right? And a consistent one, yeah. Right. I mean, for you know, for for in other parts of government people have learned about the president's view on things through twitter but when when it's a military and it's something last july we heard about the call to ban transgender troops remember the military is an organization of two million people you can't have opaque unclear personnel policies with that many people so these out sort of outbursts or tweets I think we re- re- are received one way in, in a civilian world in a military world it's just unsettling because it is the basis of us is command and control there's no right. other way to manage that many people
1: and I think you good Susan I think that that's that's fascinating because it sort of gets it you know we're all sitting here trying to figure out what is he going to do about this raid on Michael Cohen and to some extent we don't really know because it, it's he's, he's incredibly hard to discern
2: yeah I mean I think I think this gets back into sort of like how dumb does Trump? Think we are right, and that's.
0: Right? <laughs> See, I don't. Like, I don't think he has a theory of mind. That's the problem. <laughs> it's sort of like
2: it's. A, it really, really reminds me of sort of the um the Air Force One uh, statement, the explanation of Don Junior's meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower, which is like it's about adoptions, as if every thinking person wouldn't understand that that was about the Magnitsky Act, right? Like it's, they're sort of, they're too cute by half about everything. They think that if they like, oh, we have found a way that, you know, we can get away with this and no one's going to call us on it. You know, we're going to, you know, I'm not going to fire Mueller. Everyone's always talking about firing Mueller, but I can fire Rod Rosenstein. And people, you know, people won't be able to to sort of make that connection as if it's not entirely obvious sort of what's happening here. The thing I'm I'm really struck by is... um, Trump's fury over recusals, right? His notion that recusals, which really aren't discretionary, right? There are Justice Department rules about when you are conflicted and have to recuse from something. Um, but sort of his, his sense that recusal is somehow, you, you know, you're giving up power. It's, it's an expression of disloyalty. Um, I, I just think that this is sort of, it's another uh, it, it's another insight into sort of how his mind works of, you know, the the instance in which ordinary people would understand a recusal is necessary in order to protect the institutional integrity. That's the exact thing that Trump thinks that you should not be recusing. Right, that's where you have the most power. That's where you can sort of exert your will. It's almost as if he doesn't recognize that it's like the definition of corruption.
3: But in a business world where he's operated most of his career, Michael Cohen was able to rise precisely because he was loyal. Precisely because he would take the hits and and do whatever was needed. So I, I think you know we often think of like businessmen and women are great for government government's not a business and it's not just because one's looking for a profit and one's not but one operates very differently in a business world that makes a lot of sense you're in a very cutthroat world and here's a guy who's said publicly in interviews that he was going to be loyal to the bitter end and so i think that's where the disconnect is because in the business world i don't think there is recusals and i think that's the the loss in translation that comes down here because in washington that's a very normal thing that the that that boundaries have to be I mean, the whole our whole system of government is built on boundaries and respond and and honoring the lanes in which you're legally allowed to operate in
2: i mean just quickly on that point I, I do think you know federal investigations have a really uh, clarifying function in terms of things like loyalty. Um, and Michael Cohen can talk a lot about loyalty, but I think it will be really interesting to see uh, the extent of that loyalty when it has serious re- repercussions for him, for his family. Right? I mean, it, if freedom. he is in as much trouble as he appears to be, mm-hmm. um, we might get a, a better sense of sort of what the extent of his loyalty is. And I think that actually might be part of why trump is so
0: panicked here because he knows
1: michael cohn will totally squeal <laughs> on him right. so, there, so
0: there, there's another aspect of the loyalty thing too which is that um the southern district of new york the person currently serving as interim u.s attorney there actually hasn't there isn't yet a senate confirmed u.s attorney is none other than jeffrey berman who was personally interviewed for the job by trump which is not something that presidents usually do, caused a pretty big outcry at the time, you know, suggesting that Berman might have been compromised by that conversation. Um, It's obviously notable that Trump chose to interview the person who might be serving as U.S. attorney for the jurisdiction in which Trump Tower is located. Um, Clearly, that didn't help him here. Um, Berman recused from the case. Um, So... He removed himself entirely. Hard to say whether that's because of this conversation or something else. But if Trump had a vision of, you know, Justice Department leadership as going to heed to him by having these sort of personal conversations it seems like in this case the bureaucracy actually is a step ahead. I do wonder
2: if Trump will take that lesson, you know. Right. So, so if he fires Rosenstein, if he, you know, if he fires the FBI director, right? We've seen Devin Nunes on like the Sunday shows suggesting that uh, that that raid might be on the chopping block again. Whether or not he learns this lesson that um, he shouldn't fill open positions with sort of like um, establishment figures, right? Every single time that there's been an opening, and Trump has been convinced to put like a Republican, but sort of a, a mainstream Republican, that's come to that's come back to haunt him because they follow the institutional rules like recusal. So I wonder if this isn't going to incentivize him to essentially push the limits of putting, you know, increasingly ridiculous people. So imagine somebody like you know uh, Michael Cohen for Attorney General, right? People who he understands are going to be as disrespectful of the institutions. I mean, thus far, sort of the primary check on that has been his own staff and of course like then the, you know the confirmation process but whether or not he's going to try and push the limit with that especially if in the near future there are high profile vacancies mm-hmm. that he's going to be able to fill
1: uh we're going to move on to the next segment before we do i just want to note uh, breaking news that just came across because by the time you hear this podcast uh, there will probably have been a lot of discussion on it but the new york times is reporting that fbi agents who raided the office of michael cohen We're also seeking all records related to the Access Hollywood tape— Uh, in which Mr. Trump was heard making vulgar comments about women. This is according to three people who've been briefed on the contents of the search warrant. Uh, It also sought evidence of whether Michael Cohen tried to suppress damaging information about Mr. Trump during the 2016 presidential campaign. Not clear what role, if any, Mr. Cohen played regarding the tape, which was made public a month before the election. But the Times reports the fact that the agents were seeking documents related to the tape reveals a new front in the investigation into Mr. Cohen that is being led by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, so we don't know a ton right now, but you'll know more by the time you hear this future world. <laughs> um, all right, let's stay in the present, or at least the recent past, for now. Speaking of somebody who was on the edge of his seat, Mark Zuckerberg. Lonliest the edge of a
0: four-inch cushion. Yeah, Mark, a, Mark Zuckerberg on the edge seat. of a very cushion Did
1: seat. he need a booster seat? Yeah, oh, that's it so might just cute. be.
0: I mean, he was in that chair for a long time. He might have just needed a little comfort
1: wasn't like a – okay. All right. Um, well, Mark Zuckerberg testifying before a rare joint session of Congress, 44 senators, I believe, were at this hearing, which is one pointed out, which was basically half of the Senate, um, there to answer questions, uh, obviously, about Facebook's role – In the election, it's how it was compromised and used, or maybe not compromised, actually used as as designed uh, by Russian trolls and others to influence opinions, to uh, put out news stories, propaganda, etc. And obviously, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which we've talked a lot about. Um, Quinta, I mean, I'm curious, like, it's just a first-order question, like, how did he do? I mean, there was a huge amount of expectation for Zuckerberg in this moment, and I think... We weren't going to settle any disputes at this hearing. And to some extent, this was really about the question of his performance in this particular context. So let's start with how do you think he did?
0: I think he actually did well. Um, I mean, we should also say, again, uh, saying that we don't know currently everything that's happening, that Zuckerberg has been testifying this morning before a House committee. Um, But yesterday's Senate hearing... I think there was a lot of desire, certainly on my part, for a kind of catharsis, you know, a kind of walloping of him, um, you know, having no sense of decency, all no. that. That was very much not what happened. I've seen multiple reporters comment that it had the feel of kind of the nephew pulled in to like help set up the computer. And it, th- there is a lot of truth to that. Um most notably, there is a moment where, you know, someone was asking Zuckerberg a question that just didn't make any sense. And they sort of reformulated it so that it did make some right. sense. And Zuckerberg said, oh, <clears throat> OK, which just sounds like, oh, OK, your see Wi-Fi you was off. Yeah, right. Now I can help you. Did you try you? the power button? <gasps> exactly. Right. Did, you, did you unplug it and then plug it in again? Um, and look, it's easy to make fun of the Senate right. for not being prepared. I think that having 44 senators on the panel to question him is a ridiculous proposition, especially with something this complicated. But the fact that they really don't seem to understand what Facebook is and how to think about it, I think, points to something really serious, which is that. No one really understands what Facebook is. Well, and
1: even to some extent, I mean I'd be curious what you know, Susan and Nancy think of this. I'm watching it and aside from kind of some of his sort of robotic responses and he had clearly been prepped like within an inch of his young life for this hearing. <laughs> oh, he
0: he had that opening statement. Memorized. Oh
1: and it was like a lot of senator, yes.
0: There's senator, also Joel no. Joel Kaplan, who's the <laughs> VP of policy <laughs> behind him, was like making faces you there was could, a lot you, of you could, mugging you could behind see him. him reacting to what zuckerberg was yeah. saying it's like, two thumbs that up. Was oh, no, okay, he didn't that was weird okay that was weird there was a lot of yeah, mugging. like
1: yeah. it's like you are on tv sir um but i'm curious like uh to, to your point I thought what was sort of fascinating about this was precisely as Quintus said. I mean, you're listening to like these senators who I, I frankly, you know, maybe a little bit of more of a dig on their staff for not helping them kind of form more articulated questions uh, and kind of get at what the hell are we trying to ask here. But even like with Zuckerberg talking to them, it was this sense of like, I'm not sure anybody really completely has a great agreed upon definition of what Facebook is. And I think... One of the frustrations for lawmakers may have been that to some extent, that's a little bit by design at Facebook, right? I mean, it is they're constantly iterating and innovating, and they're doing all these things that... To, to a lawmaker, I think it's sort of maybe is a little bit mind bending that this company operates in part by, you know, challenging convention and being willing to fail and trying all kinds of new stuff. And maybe we're this today, and maybe we're that tomorrow. And they are perfectly comfortable living to some degree in that world of ambiguity. Although, as Zuckerberg made it very clear, like they completely understand what their business model is. That's a different thing. But the it feels like they were sometimes having a different set of conversations and trying to agree on what the hell are we talking about here.
2: So I think that's a reflection of right, – this is the first time Mark Zuckerberg has testified in front of Congress. And so there are lots of different issues that have sort of built up over time. And I, I think Congress recognizes this is probably the last time they're going to get a, a sort of a shot at him in, in that kind of public setting for a long time. And so some of, like, the back and forth is just, hey, I don't care so much about this Cambridge Analytica thing. I don't care about what you're – I care about sort of my issue, right, this thing. Um, and I, I think it's especially jarring whenever um, – uh, a senator might have sort of had an issue that uh, has been mooted, right, or sort of changed. It's, it's like we're, we're picking Facebook scandals from different eras, and each sort of senator is asking questions related to that. And, and so I agree there was sort of – there was a disjointedness. Um, but I, I think you would have seen the same disjointedness if, you know, Bill Gates had testified in 2000, right? Like it's, it's sort of it's, – it's everybody wants a piece. But do you think you would therapy?
1: have heard the same disjointedness if they testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee instead? Which has been steeped in this stuff and would have very specific questions.
0: I Well, I think that part of it is that the Republican, well, not all Republican senators, a handful of Republican senators, um, Ben Sass, Ted Cruz, were concerned about this question of Facebook censoring conservative content or not allowing it to spread. To the extent that it should have, we will put should in air quotes there because there's really no objective measure, um, whereas the Democrats were not concerned about that. The Republicans were kind of concerned about over-regulation leading to censorship of of voices of their constituents, and the Democrats weren't. Um, so there, there is a kind of double aspect going on there that might have been present in the Senate intelligence committee, because, because I don't actually think it's not just, you know, censoring conservative voices that actually points to a real problem about what it means if we do over censor.
3: Oh, I, was, I was just going to say, you know, for me as an outside observer watching it, I was struck by this vicious cycle of we need to regulate more because it's a monopoly, but we don't really understand mm. it. And as someone who's covered the implications of Facebook's reach around the world, it just struck me as a little late because the impact hmm. has been profound. I mean, it was a contributing factor to Arab Spring. It's shaping how people talk around the world. And even as you talk about regulating, you, we're also conceding that it might be a monopoly. And so how do you pull that back when the impact has been so profound, not only just with Cambridge Analytica, but really how the the world interacts, yeah. it's become a critical tool, especially in developed areas, for people to reach out and bypass government or bypass censorship. So it's just interesting to me, Lindsey Graham's exchange with um, Zuckerberg when he talks about are you a monopoly or not? And and then, and then Zuckerberg says, we do need to be regulated. Well, what kind of regulation? Well, we can't tell you what kind of regulation. It just kept going in a vicious circle. So
1: we will be happy to work with you. So
3: I think this is an important point and it's actually something I sort of,
2: I do not understand why this is the scandal that has taken hold, right? There's been all kinds of sort of curf- about Facebook, but something about like this particular scandal—the Cambridge
1: Analytica thing, the
2: Cambridge Analytica, and the, like the the apps that allowed the scraping of the pre- friend's profile. Like, really, this thing <clears throat> that like they resolved in twenty fifteen, and sort of has already been reported for anybody who's paying attention to the FTC, you know, consent agreement stuff. Like, I there's there's sort of an irrationality to it. of the, You know, this is, for some reason, this is what's captured uh, the public's imagination. This is what captured sort of Congress's imagination. And so I do think that whenever we, you know, you heard Zuckerberg say that re- regulation is probably inevitable. And I do think that they're starting to understand that. But the particular type of regulation is going to be driven by whatever it is, like whatever feature is the thing that right. has sort of taken hold in, in the public. Right. And that's not necessarily related to right. the most important issues or the issues that are even most amenable to regulation right.
3: how do you regulate how people take information years after they've gotten used to this model how they interact with each other what they consider privacy what how they hand over information what they understand about what they're posting it just you know i think of these sort of apex of facebook and its impact in terms of arab spring and it just had such a profound shaping of um how information is exchanged that you're right. This talk about Cambridge Analytica. It's very important. But the the subsect in terms of the consequence was that there's a platform now that is fundamentally changing how we take in information. Right. Quinto oh, – sorry, go ahead. Whenever we sort of talk about his uh, –
2: you know, evaluating his performance, I'm really reminded – whenever I was a uh, like summer associate at a law firm, so just like a law student there for the summer, um, I was really stressed out about doing a good job um, until finally somebody told me, like, you actually can't do a good job. You can only, like, not screw up.
1: That's interesting. That's it's
2: like, don't screw anything up. You've done a great job. That's like the apex of the achievement. It's not possible for you to like write a really amazing brief or something. Like you're an idiot. You're a law student. You don't right. know anything. Um, I feel like Mark Zuckerberg, it was the exact same thing. Like there was no way that he was going to go and do like an amazing job and win people over and, right. uh, you know, have this charm offense. It, worse. it was like he just, he just had to not screw up. And that is sort of a resounding success. And by that metric, you know, barring some sort of meltdown that we aren't seeing because we're recording this. Podcast right now, uh, right? He he wildly succeeded only
0: by not making things worse for them.
1: Yeah. Quinta, why do you think the Quint- yes. Cambridge Analytica has captured the imagination? So, so
0: I will register a note of dissent here. I actually think that it's totally true that most of the information about Cambridge Analytica we already knew, right? Which I think as, as even before the New York Times, yes, story. yes, absolutely. um which is one of the reasons why it's sort of confusing (laughs) why this is important. I would argue that it's significant because um, it is a sort of window into seeing all these different dynamics that are really at the center of the question of what happened during the 2016 election, Um, not only how, russia might have leveraged social media tools but as nancy says how sort of how we've changed to exist on this platform which is something new and different that there's something in the way that that news is consumed that algorithms determine what is shown um there's been a lot written on how there's a potentially radicalizing effect. You know, if you click on things about how Donald Trump is great, you start getting things about how Alex Jones is great. Um, that the way the ads can play into that. Um, and then there's the privacy aspect as well. So what I think it is, is that there's there was this platform that sort of changed the way we existed in the world. And then suddenly it turned out very bluntly that that was a huge liability in society as a whole and now everyone is having to come to terms with that suddenly in a much sort of blunter way Hmm. than we have thought about it previously even though these questions of of privacy and you know tracking across platforms have been present
1: okay speaking of things and people getting fired cruise missiles (laughs) Uh, Nancy, obviously, the uh, the other big <laughs> question on the White House is played right now. Meanwhile, in other news, uh, is uh, whether or not the U.S. is going to take any military action in response to the chemical weapons attack in Syria, uh, which what, I don't, what's the death count now on that? I believe it's
3: three. So- Yes, and 500 affected. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, not the first time we've seen the Assad regime use chemical weapons against civilians. Um, But this was, I believe, in one of the last sort of rebel holdout areas around Damascus. Um, So talk to us about what you know uh, in terms of kind of where the thinking is on this right now. I mean, I think we're anticipating there will be some response. Maybe you'll correct me if that's wrong. But what is the thinking about how to respond? And I guess the ultimate the question is, you know, What do we hope to gain by doing that?
3: Well, that's a really important question, (coughs) the last one in particular. Um, If I could just set it up briefly. So as you mentioned, the Assad regime has used chemical weapons um, in the past. The area that was hit is called Duma, which is just outside of Damascus. And the reason it was hit And the way it was hit suggests that the regime decided that rather than go block by block, it would use a mix of chlorine and sarin to try to mask its responsibility in this and make it harder for the international community to determine who was responsible for this attack as a sort of brutal way to get um, one of the major groups there, al Islam, to leave and therefore move its control over a wider swath outside the capital. And it worked, because after that chemical attack, which targeted hospitals in an effort to affect the maximum number of people, including people hiding in their basements, Jaish islam members got on their buses and left. So this has been a red line, the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime. And then a year ago, and this happened on the one-year anniversary of the U.S. strike in Syria, the U.S. did this thing, which was basically a messaging strike. They dropped 59 Tomahawk uh, missiles into um, Sharat, which was the airfield from which they thought last year's strike happened, and took out the runway in some planes. The, the, the runway and the base was operational within days. So the... The feeling is that that message didn't get through because we're now dealing with a far bigger attack of, um, on on civilians a year later. And so you now have a U.S. military and administration contemplating strikes Um again, at either regime targets or even Russian targets um, to try to, from the words of U.S. officials, cripple their ability to conduct such strikes. Now, there are a couple challenges. These strikes um, were launched from helicopters. We're talking about hitting airfields. Does that really curtail it? They have Russian support. What happens if the U.S. were to hit Russian bases or kill Russian troops or Iranian forces? Would the Israelis do something independently because they see the use of chemical weapons as an exit threat to them. Um, It gets pretty complicated. But your question is a key one and one we haven't really had explained thus far, which is what is the goal? Is it a retaliatory strike? Is it one that eliminates their air power altogether? We haven't really gotten that explanation. Instead, we got a tweet from Trump that really kind of telegraphed to the Syrian regime that something was coming. And so um, militarily, the USS Donald Cook is the destroyer of the region. There's an expectation that the French and the British would participate. Um, there are subs in the region. Um, it, it's not clear whether they would use manned aircraft because the, reg- the Russians have um, um, ability to sort of um, guard um, and, and launch counterattacks, if you will, on aircraft. Mm. So um, there's a lot of ambiguity to it. But the, the not long and short of it is this will be more devastating because the feeling is that the messaging strike didn't get through, that this time and has to have a crippling effect. And I would just add that this all comes days after the administration announced that it was getting out of Syria. And so it's an interesting dilemma for the U.S. military because there are many wars going on in Syria. And the one the U.S. military is primarily focused on is on the eastern side of the country against the Islamic State. This attack was against um, extremist elements on the western side of the state in a part of the war that the U.S. military hasn't been involved in. So I think for military planners and those who follow this closely, in a matter of days, this went from the war we were going to wind down to to the one we're going to respond to in a completely different way to a completely different threat.
1: And do you think that that's by accident in the sense that what I mean is— did the Assad regime take this opportunity to gas these people because the president had announced that we're getting out and had really done it in this quite sudden way that is, you know, I know from our reporting, your reporting, I mean, took all of his advisors by surprise. It's not even clear if the military understands the time on the on, but everybody seems to think it's like six months and we're out of that? Do you think that had something to do with Assad? Pushing that button, so to speak, and saying,
3: yeah. So I'll give you two explanations, okay. and I'll let you, dear listeners, decide, because I literally go back and forth every day. So on one hand, it's it's one, co- one big coincidence that this would happen when it did, right? Um, after the announcement, on the day that the U.S. did a, a strike a year ago, one could argue that the us had already signaled that they weren't going to be in syria anyway well before the 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 announcements by the administration that by by us actions that it wasn't going to get involved it wasn't going to really confront assad's grip on the country okay so in that sense that announcement shouldn't matter now the other hand one could argue that that announcement for assad was a way to sort of signal to his enemies the West is not going to come back you up, and I'm going to prove it by doing a strike and watch how impotent they are against my my abilities. Because one would think that if, if you're hearing the president say we're not going to get involved, why do anything more? I sometimes wonder if we have a, a U.S.-centric view. I, I personally can't figure out where that goes. I go back and forth. I really believe that in his mind, um, this is an acceptable level of barbarity against his enemy. And it was faster than going block by block. And it was messaging to the elements that remain. Now the US part of it is unclear, I would just point out that the U.S., through its actions, had indicated that it wasn't going to do anything for the Assad regime for weeks and weeks and weeks. So, but again, I I, I literally go back and forth because I just can't get past the coincidence of doing it so soon after, as you point out. Mm such a public pronouncement.
2: So, Nancy, I mean, you are one of the reporters that probably knows the internal workings of the Pentagon better than almost anyone. Um, so I'm sort of curious as, what's your perception about how the Pentagon is dealing with the chaos out of the White House? So, like, literally 20 minutes ago, it was announced that Nadia Shadlow is going to be leaving the National Security Council. Um, she was an architect of the national security strategy that included sort of an articulation on, on Syria. Um, is your sense that the the, the you know the military is the military and they're just trudging ahead with sort of strategic aims and and the chaos that's happening at the white house is uh uh not particularly disorienting to them um, or do you think that this constant turnover the lack of sort of uh, of clear guidance as opposed to moods and sort of hints about where the president's going how is the pentagon responding to that are they learning going kind of, what's your sense of that
3: so one of the things you I've seen is that Secretary Mattis has been the key point person in terms of contact between the Defense Department and the administration, and he has sort of done that by design. Now, there's a chain of command that allows for that, but I think he's taken particular control in terms of the interactions that happen between the department and the White House, and I think part of that is to mitigate against uh, misunderstandings and confusion. Um, so the... The Pentagon has many, many skills, and one of them is um, hearing what you want to hear in this face of confusion. And so, from their perspective, if there's not an order, then we're get, then we're okay. I mean, they're looking for orders and guidance, and I think the challenge they have is sort of blocking out the noise. From their perspective, they have had the same cabinet secretary and the same chairman. There is a chain of command that's supposed to buffer against it. I think the real challenge and where you've seen it, frankly was in afghanistan and syria because for months and months and months we didn't have an afghanistan plan it took until august of last year while u.s troops were dying in the field and and so what's the end state you're trying to achieve it's hard to ask a service member to go overseas without that not being articulated and again in syria we had this sort of back and forth i mean i remember traveling to um to kuwait in, uh, in in January, and there was a general just holding up Tillerson's speech on Syria from the month before. He's like, we have a strategy, we have a strategy, because there was something finally written down. So what you see is a building sort of grasping for guidance, whatever the guidance is, and they'll, they'll follow that order. The other thing I think you see, which for me is a little unsettling and has always been unsettling, is... It gives an opportunity for generals, or at least almost, some would argue, forces generals to sort of take a step back because how can you engage when it's so unclear? You can it it sort of forces them to stay in their lane and say we're just following orders. And so in that way, I think it limits the level of discourse that needs to happen about these major decisions. You know, it's not the military. You know, the past would be the military coming forward with, with four plans that they would have had ready to go because they understood the president's direction. You can feel it on this, that this is a Pentagon sort of scrambling. OK, this is what the president wants. How do we make it fit? It's kind of things have been a little topsy-turvy. Now, that said, it's very hard. There is a there is a command and control structure there. People are reticent to criticize. People are reticent. They'll, you know, at the height of the frustration, you can still get someone to say, but he's the commander in chief. And that means something to them. And,
2: I mean, one sort of sentiment I'm seeing come out of part of sort of the national security establishment is this notion that, like, Trump is asking the right questions, right? He's breaking the orthodoxy and this is, like, the one good thing. Is that shared at all in the
3: Pentagon? So, it's funny because I'll, you'll talk to people and he's asking, he's asking sometimes the right questions in that, in that, you know, sometimes you bring somebody new in and they have a fresh perspective, I think the challenge is to then what to do with that information, what the expectation is. Um, You know, why are we still in Afghanistan? Why do we need to stay in Syria? Those are valid questions. But the process, as I've seen it, has been a lot of consternation back and forth and a Pentagon, frankly, that's able to get him to pick the middle policy, right? We saw this in Afghanistan. You can see the Washington Post had reported this about these different options that they'll spell out. So you see them sort of, Hearing all his questions, coming up with options and really sort of catering it towards the middle option, the one that's sort of the least risky. So with the with Russia and the and the um diplomats and which one should be, um, expelled. They gave them the, as as the post reported, the small, medium and large option and militarily the same thing happens. They give the small, medium and large option and basically say small takes a lot of risk and you would own it if it didn't work out and big is very costly. Why don't you pick the middle? And that's the kind of thing I see that happens the most often that they're hearing his questions and somehow guiding through advice and recommendations, a moderate approach in the absence of any sort of clear, um, sort of t- Trump doctrine on, on on national security.
1: Quinta, last word.
3: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things
0: I was thinking about where you were saying that is um, that tr- Trump has in many ways, um, at least in the space of targeted killing or you know um, operations on a sort of on a more pinprick basis, that there's actually it's been reported that there's some worry in the Pentagon that he's actually devolved too much responsibility toward them, not in terms of tactics or strategy, but just in the sense of
3: authorities.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. and being able to say, you know, well, I didn't do that. That wasn't my fault. Um, that Obama was very sort of personally involved and that Trump has been pushing back a little bit and right. that there's a concern that, as as he said, um when that Navy SEAL died, you know, they lost Ryan. Right. That wasn't me. Is there concern about that
3: here too? So I actually think it was, it's a great question. I actually think it was going that way. And where you're starting to see the resistance, I think is in Niger because you had a lot of authorities given down to lower levels. And then and the, the October 4th death of those um, four service members um, I think sort of highlighted the perils of giving so much authority so much lower down without a real proper, um, or in-depth supervision. Now, I, I will tell you that the Pentagon folks felt micromanaged a lot of times by the Obama administration. So you're right; it could have gone too far. I never heard it as a serious discussion until Niger. And in fact, my colleague Michael Phillips reported today about commanders now being given they're moving, they're putting pushing troops back from front lines and not having them as forward as a reaction. So um, the push pull is starting to happen, and I, the turning point was Niger.
1: Okay, let's move on to our object lessons. Quinta, you want to go first?
0: Sure. So Ben and I uh, have a piece in The Atlantic that was actually published a week or so ago but is unfortunately relevant now about whether or not we're in a constitutional crisis, Um, which has kind of been a permanent question, at least for me, over the past year or so. Um, And what we concluded is that there's not really a clear definition of constitutional crisis, which makes it kind of hard to answer the question. The better concept might be the idea um, of what uh, two scholars, John Finn and Jack Balkin have called constitutional rot um, that we're in this sort of situation where the text of the constitution is there. Everyone is still referring to it as, you know, the authority on what you should do, but the underlying sense of, you know, we, the people, the president honoring his oath is not there. Um, And that Ben actually went a little farther and said, well, maybe it's not constitutional rot because rot sort of one way it's a constitutional infection Mm. and that the, the sort of pushback against Trump is an effort to, to heal. And so the question like antibodies, exactly. So in this very overstretched metaphor, the (laughs) (laughs) the question is essentially whether those antibodies are strong enough to, to push back. Um, against the sort of decay that's going on, is
1: one of the antibodies? Um, just announced that he's not seeking re-election.
0: <laughs> I don't know if Paul Ryan is an antibody. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think Paul Ryan may be part of the infection.
1: Oh, okay, all right. Uh, Nancy, what's your object?
3: I'm sharing a tweet because okay. we now get enough of those in Washington. <laughs> this is today from the president: Russia oh, vows him. to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria get ready russia because they will be coming nice and new and quote-unquote smart you shouldn't be partners with a gas killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it explanation point okay and i point this out is because um i don't remember a time when the u.s has declared war essentially um via tweet right because when you say get ready russia it's hard to understand the scenario in which the u.s can now push back and say never mind right because we've just he did kind of just
1: like let them know that it's coming right
3: yeah and so as i told you we don't your military does not talk bad about his commander's chief but there were a lot of things in here he you know he says russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles that fired at syria that raises questions about whether u.s operation can have manned aircraft or do we have to do it because he that he said it or do we have to not do it because of this threat um they're coming nice and new smart weapons those are um, precision guided weapons so we're signaling that And the US Donald Cook is in the region and is now susceptible, arguably, and suspect, well, is expected to be a part of the operation, is vulnerable now, arguably, to harassment from um, um, Russian planes and whatnot because of the sort of provocative tweet. And so I just wanted to point it out because I've covered the US military since 2003, and it's the first time I ever went, oh, so that's how we're going to find out about this mission today, the start of it. It makes reporting easier, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you can find You just roll over in bed and be like, okay. I
1: thought the whole plan with Trump was to be unpredictable. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Susan, your object.
2: All right, So my object is both thematic to the episode and thematic to rational securities um, oh, commitment okay. to log rolling constantly. Oh, nice. Um, so mine is a great moment in the uh, uh, Facebook testimony in the Senate yesterday, in which um, Senator Cantwell asked Mark Zuckerberg whether or not he knew what total information awareness. This is going to be
1: my object. Oh my God! Oh, Thank no, you for I doing, doing it. your object. <laughs> this is way better. My you <laughs> object
2: in
0: my chair. This
2: was not planned. We did not. Plan we did this. not plan this.
3: Rational Witness, Security they listeners. did not plan it. It I saw. is all.
2: This is all organic. You're getting the unfiltered approach. So my object lesson, which was maybe going to be Shane's object lesson, is the wonderful book The Watchers by one Shane Harris, which would teach Mark Zuckerberg absolutely everything he could possibly want to know about TIA, total information awareness, somewhere Poindexter has a big smile on his face. Guess Um, he never
1: opened a Facebook account.
2: (laughs) It can be our joint object lesson. I
1: love that. No, you totally, that's perfect. That's way better than me like log-rolling you should mail
2: him a copy. You know, I
1: did tweet. I, I, so I tweeted yesterday, oh, I know what TIA is about. And then I, I did not tweet it directly at Zuckerberg. I should have, but I tweeted with uh, uh, Zuck Baby, some light airplane reading for the ride home. But uh, it was great. It was, really, it was really something for it. I was just like high-fiving Maria Cantwell. I'm like looking at Zuckerberg and being like, how do you not know what total information awareness know? is? He's a child. But then I realized he was probably literally a freshman in college when that happened. He's,
0: in right? his He's dorm room older than at
2: I am, and I know what yeah. it is. So
1: I think he needs to read my book. But
2: that's because I read your book. So
1: Maybe I'll buy an ad on Facebook to promote it. <laughs> J.K. Oh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. You've made it through again, listeners. Oh, and you're still here. (laughs) Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. Ben promised that our show page would be migrating at some point. Uh, Maybe that's why he's really not here. Maybe he's out there taking care of our show page. I kind of doubt it. You can follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity. You can find us on Facebook. We are still on Facebook. Facebook is still free. You can find it there. Uh, you can find us on your favorite podcasting service. When you do download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review. We really appreciate it; helps us out. It's a much much appreciated. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Michael Cohen and the Canary Quartet. No, it's not quite okay. right. Can canary. What could go with Canary? The Loyal Canary. The Midtown canary, Chorus. The what? The Canary. Chorus. Canary Chorus. Michael Cohen and the Canaries. It just, I don't know. It's not working for me. The point is, he's going to sing. The point is, he's going to sing like a canary. And it's going to be a compelling song, indeed. And if he does sing like a canary, Sophia Yan will happily do backup she would definitely play backup if he wanted to like flip and give some testimony
2: yeah and set to like a nice nice there.
1: mood music for your interview with Bob Mueller. she'll be happy to be there for you let us know we can make that available on behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy and our special guests Quint Jurassic and Nancy Youssef I'm Shane Harris thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week bye bye normally being a little extra can be a bit much